Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter to time, verse by verse. We're in chapter 9. We're looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Seeing the faith of a paralytic and his friends, Jesus forgives his sins, heals him, tells him to take up his bed and go home. The title of our message, Bed, Faith, and Beyond. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that each of us would have a trembling sense that you're gonna be speaking to us in a minute, words of wonder and awe, words of love and grace, and that we would receive, Lord, from you uh, as your children, adored and loved by you, adopted into your family, saved and on our way to heaven. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would be overwhelmed by your sacrifice as a substitute on the cross on their behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I ran across a list of the five most commonly misdiagnosed medical conditions. Uh, They are lupus, Parkinson's disease, fibromyalgia, Lyme's disease, and multiple sclerosis. While it's super frustrating to be misdiagnosed, I can understand that the conditions on that list are indeed hard to determine. Some medical problems are just less obvious than others. In our text today, a man is brought to Jesus being carried on his bed by his friends. It's pretty obvious to everyone in the crowded room of the house in Capernaum that he is a paralytic. Jesus looks at him and in his best great physician voice says, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Did Jesus miss the diagnosis? Well, of course not. Whether or not it was the direct cause of his paralysis, sin was the root cause of this man's real problems and it was a far more serious condition than any physical condition. There's something else we'll discover as we read this text. There was more than one paralytic in the room with Jesus. The scribes who had come to hear Jesus were also severely paralyzed, but in a different way. For one thing, they never moved a muscle, though they could, to help bring the paralytic or anyone to Jesus. And for another thing, their heart muscle was so hardened that they got upset, Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic. Outwardly and physically, they seemed fine and in good health. Inwardly and spiritually, they suffered from the same spiritual malady as the paralytic. Everyone in that room, with the exception of Jesus, suffered from it. They were all born with inherited sin, born with what we like to call a sin nature. Then throughout their lives, they had all committed individual acts of sin. The physical condition of the paralytic It's a picture of the true spiritual condition of the human race. We're all paralyzed by sin. There's only one cure. You need to have your sins forgiven. God alone has the power to forgive you your sins. Jesus was and is God. He was present then. He's present now with the power to forgive you and thereby heal your spiritual paralysis. Most of us here are former paralytics who've been forgiven at the cross. We would identify in this story most strongly with the paralytic. But that doesn't mean we can't learn something from the reaction of the scribes. We can learn never to regress in our walk with the Lord and be found thinking or acting like them. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, being a forgiven former paralytic, you should be cheerful and rejoice. And number two, being a forgiven former paralytic, you should be careful not to regress. Let's take a look in verses one and two at this paralytic. 
Now we saw last Jesus cast a legion of demons from two men in a cemetery. The demons entered a herd of swine who then stampeded over a cliff to their death in the Sea of Galilee. The, pills, uh, the pigs excuse me, essentially killed themselves. It was the first recorded case of pig suicide. <laughs> Get it? Suey, pig call? It wasn't original with me, but I laughed. Now, the townspeople of that region, as one, asked Jesus to depart. He humbled himself and left them. He had just landed, performed this amazing miracle, got right back on the boat, as it were, and left them. Who could calculate the wonders he would have done in their midst? The souls that would have been saved, the people that would have been healed. It's tragic to send Jesus away when he's knocking at your door. If you need a, a, you know, a trigger to be compassionate towards non-believers, just think of them as turning Jesus away the way these people did in the region of the Gadarenes when he could have done so much for them. And it will help you to continue to have compassion. And so he got into a boat, verse one, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now his own city was Capernaum. That's where he had been based or would be based for about 18 months total. Uh, specifically, Jesus bunked in a home Peter had something to do with. It was either his home or it belonged to someone in his family. Now you might note in passing that they had an uneventful boat ride back over to Capernaum. There was no satanic storm. When you are with the Lord, walking with him, you can't expect certain experiences to always be repeated. I mean, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, okay, we we just went through this, this literally hellacious storm, this satanic storm. Now we're ready for the trip back. I got my pillow. I'm just gonna sleep it off just like Jesus, and it's just totally uneventful as if nothing is happening. Sometimes Christians, um, they, they think, you know, well, nothing happened. Well, what are you talking about? Well, there wasn't a visible manifestation of the presence of God. And so therefore, nothing happened. I submit to you that whenever God's people gather together, something has to happen because the Lord is in the midst of them. Uh, And so we want to be careful. You know, we don't deny experiences. I think we could be too cautious and say, well, you don't want to ever have any experiences. Uh, But, you know, we're an experiential people. But you don't have to always have the same experiences or be able to point to a certain experience and say, well, I know God was there because this one guy got up and did this or this one lady did this or this happened. So that proves to me that the Lord was in that place. I know the Lord was, you know, involved because there was a storm. Hey, the Lord was involved because there was a calm. And so uh, don't, don't get trapped into thinking that everything is going to repeat itself in your walk with the Lord. Verse two, then behold, now we don't know in what proximity this is. Actually, verse one of chapter nine be, belongs at the end of chapter eight. And so sometime later or in some chronology we don't understand because Matthew doesn't always write chronologically. He says, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now this would be an extreme case. He could do nothing for himself. In all likelihood, the paralytic could not even speak. He lay around all day on his bed, drooling and having caregivers help him with all of his bodily functions in a a really terrible, not just third world, but a third world first century culture. 
The physical condition of the paralytic is a picture of the true spiritual condition of the human race, all of us paralyzed by sin. He will become, as I said, a dramatic visual aid for Jesus to show his authority on earth to forgive sin. In typical Matthew minimalist fashion, he leaves out one of the most funny details of this story. Finding the house packed and unable to get in, the four friends carrying the paralytic go up onto the flat roof of the house, which would often double as a patio. They made a hole in it and lowered the paralytic down on ropes right in front of Jesus. It's an usher's worst nightmare. I mean, what do you do when the roof starts to open up? Who do you call? And so these guys, I don't know if they had a sawzall or how they did this, but they tore up the roof and they lowered down their friend right in front of Jesus precisely. Here was a man, or rather, first of all, uh, it helps us understand his statement when Jesus saw their faith. These guys were certain that the Lord could and would deal with their friend They were so certain that they just had to get him in front of him, and their extreme effort to do so spoke of their faith. I mean, so in a sense, Jesus could see their faith in action. There were people crowding and sitting and doing different things, but these guys, they believed that if this guy got in front of Jesus Christ, something would happen, and they were gonna get him there no matter what. And they took the most extreme measure that I can think of, and Jesus saw that faith. Here was a man in the greatest physical need possible. He was a paralytic, unable to move, undoubtedly, as I said, unable to speak. Jesus spoke to his deeper need, the spiritual healing that can only come by having your sins forgiven. What sins can a paralyzed man commit anyway? It speaks of your sin nature that pervades every part of your life. Whether or not this man was born a paralytic physically, he was definitely born a spiritual paralytic. It's one of the many illustrations the Bible suggests by which we may understand our sin and need for a savior. Another is to say we are all born dead in trespasses and sins. Another is to say we owe a debt of sin that we cannot pay. The point of all of them is to show we are helpless unless God, by his grace, intervenes. Now, how could Jesus forgive his sins? In order to forgive sins, God sent his one and only son into the world. You know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In order to give us that grace of forgiveness, the son of God became the lamb of God. John 1.29, John the Baptist said of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of God shed his blood as our substitute. In Revelation 5.12, John saw angels singing of Jesus, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And so the Son of God was the Lamb of God who was slain in our place, on our behalf, and Jesus now has the authority to forgive sins. We now, and we now have the authority to announce his forgiveness of sins. Do you realize how incredible that is, really? That when you share with someone, when you get into that beautiful situation, when somebody's heart is open to the gospel, when you share with them, you are 100% certain based on the word of God and the son of God, by the spirit of God, that that person's sins 
can be forgiven by believing in Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no doubt. There's nothing they need to do. There's no works of righteousness. They need to be declared righteous by, by God. And it, what a tremendous truth that is. It's the greatest truth there is. The crowd surrounding him or his friends up on the roof or the paralytic himself may have been wanting to hear Jesus say, man, your paralysis is gone. But when the Lord said to him, your sins are forgiven, spiritual life would have so filled his heart as to render his paralysis somewhat meaningless. Do you agree with that? It's a strong statement. I was watching a video several years ago. It was a Christian video about AIDS. It was when AIDS was pretty much first becoming known and it was a a very scary time, more so than even today because it was so unknown. There were people talking about, you know, pandemic AIDS with, uh, you know, vector-borne AIDS. The, The mosquitoes would carry the virus. Others were saying that all you needed to do was like have a drop of sweat or a tear from someone with AIDS fall into food as they were preparing it and the entire restaurant would be infected. I mean, it was, it was that kind of a thing. And so I was watching this video and those being interviewed were dying of AIDS, but they had become Christians. I'll never forget the words of one of those terminal individuals. He said he would rather have AIDS and know Jesus than not have AIDS but not know Jesus. The forgiveness of his sins had rendered his physical condition meaningless because he was now headed for heaven. Jesus even said, be of good cheer, and he said it before the guy was healed when he had only been forgiven of his sins. And so he puts into perspective for us what we know to be true, obviously, that the forgiveness of sins, that the, the, the deeper spiritual need is always what we want to speak to. Now, there is a cheer and a joy that accompanies salvation. Of course, it's nothing short of miraculous to know that you're a citizen of heaven. Now, there's no guarantee on earth that Jesus will heal you physically, Spiritually, you can nevertheless be of good cheer knowing that he will heal your physical body ultimately either by resurrection or at the rapture. People think it's a cop-out and they say, well, if, if the Lord doesn't heal you now, he'll heal you ultimately. Well, yeah, he sure will. You're gonna have a glorified body. You're gonna live forever. And we just... It's hard for us, it's hard for me, it's hard for all of us to, to put in perspective something that we can't really fathom and that is eternity but at least we can understand in principle that the 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years I might live on earth in a body that's falling apart is nothing compared to the eternity that I will spend with the Lord if I'm a believer in a perfect glorified body. Now this man was carried along to Jesus when he could do nothing for himself. Faith carries us along into the presence of Jesus when we can do nothing for ourselves, when we are spiritual paralytics. God uses means for faith to carry us to Jesus. His word, anointed by his spirit, carries us. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God's spirit-anointed word comes to you in many ways. In this case, it came to him by friends who recognized the paralytic, uh, helpless condition, and they brought him to the word. If you are saved, a former paralytic, you are now the friend of some other spiritual paralytic. Try and get them to Jesus. Now, let's look at the rest of the verses where we'll see that we want to be careful not to regress 
We are not these scribes. They weren't saved. We are, for the most part. But we don't want to become like them. Let's describe scribes. The root meaning of the name scribe is one who writes. It's where we get our word scribble or inscribe. The original occupation of a scribe was to make copies of official documents in the age before printing. They were the original Xerox machines. They would also write letters, decrees, and other documents. The New Testament scribes trace their origin back to Ezra, who is called a ready scribe in the law of Moses. They would... um, scribble the word, they would repeat the word, they would make copies of it, and they would study it and get deep into it. And they had a good solid start under Ezra, but their movement eventually became legalistic. They developed an elaborate system of interpreting God's law, a strict set of practices, so that you knew what to do at all times in order to supposedly be righteous. Remember Mary Poppins? How many of you have seen Mary Poppins recently? All of you with grandchildren have seen it 27 times. But there's a, there's a, a scene in there where, where Mr. Banks, you know, his children are trying to explain something to him and they say that Mary Poppins has a word to say when you don't know what to say and it's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And he looks at them and he says, yes, well, I always know what to say. And of course, he needs to be broken by the end of the movie and realize that he, he's not connected with his family or with reality because he's, he's so into the world and stuff. And he finally, you know, gets it and says supercalifragilic, I can't even pronounce it right now. But anyway, I have to sing it and I'm not going to do that. But uh, it's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Anyway, uh, so, so that's, that's the scribe. The scribe is a guy that knows what to, I, yes, I know exactly what to do. And they're missing the whole point. The rules and regulations, the rites and rituals became a source of self-righteousness. They did nothing to affect the heart. Their interpretations and teachings had the effect of putting religious burdens on the common people, but not helping to bear them. Nevertheless, the people saw them as spiritual and they respected them. And in the context of our story, they would be understood to be the most healthy spiritual people in that room. If, if you were doing a, an assessment of spiritual health from the point of view of a first century Jew and you saw the scribes, you would think these are the spiritual guys in our midst. Verse three, and at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now here's a great simple definition of blasphemy. It is claiming either to be God or to do what only God can do. Sooner or later, you're going to hear someone say that Jesus never claimed to be God. A lot of people say that. They say, well, if you read the Gospels carefully, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, the scribes certainly thought that he was claiming to be God because you can only accuse someone of blasphemy if they're claiming to be God and doing what only God can do. And so Jesus, whether he actually said the words, oh, by the way, I am now claiming to be God. He forgave a man's sins and the scribes recoiled and said, this man is claiming to be God. And so he absolutely did claim to be God by his activities. Verse four, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Yes, Jesus was God, but he set aside the prerogatives of deity in order to live as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He was always fully God and always fully man, But 
when he was ministering, he, it wasn't that he was omniscient. He wasn't acting omnisciently. He was probably the Holy Spirit giving him a supernatural word of knowledge. Remember the last time we were together, or a couple times back, he said he was amazed at the faith of, of uh, the centurion. Well, if you're God, you're, you're obviously you're omniscient. You, it's kind of hard to be amazed because you know what's going to happen. But from the point of view that he was a man as well, he could know amazement and wonder and he could uh, you know, experience these things. And so there's the great mystery of the God-man. Jesus didn't quit being God when he became a man and then become God again. That's a heresy. He was always fully God and fully human and he always will be. Uh, and, and yet sometimes when we read these texts, we immediately assume, oh, well, there he was acting like God. Or there he was acting like a man. Well, now he was always God, but on the earth as he ministered, he, was, he had set aside those prerogatives of deity in order to walk as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And so rather than say that he knew their thoughts because he was God, the Holy Spirit revealed their thoughts to him in a word of knowledge. And this is a great case study for the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge, which is knowledge the Holy Spirit gives you of somebody or something that you can't know any other way. When he reveals to your heart something that you can't or don't otherwise know, uh, it's the supernatural world, word of knowledge. Now, this is a pretty heavy accusation, saying that the guys uh, who were recognized as the most spiritual guys in the room were all thinking evil in their hearts. Certainly to accuse Jesus of blasphemy was evil, but really all their thoughts were evil. They sat there smug, thinking to judge the Lord in order to find fault. All the while, they did nothing for a poor paralytic. They didn't even get out of his way so Jesus could minister to him when his friends brought him and so they had to lower him through the roof. It's a real neat picture of this legalistic, scribal, pharisaical kind of of approach to religion. To just sit there and not lift a finger to help anyone else. In fact, to put more burdens on them and to actually block them from coming to Jesus and simply make accusations. These guys sat there listening to the word of God but with a critical what's in it for me kind of spirit. They didn't come to be ministered to or to minister to others. Let's be careful we never act that way. And so in verse five, Jesus says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? No one could ask better questions than Jesus. No one ever. And so these guys You know, Jesus knew he had to carry the conversation because they're just gonna sit there. And and whether it's this or whether he's asking them whose inscription is on a coin or whatever, Jesus could always ask the most pertinent question and and you, you just couldn't answer because whatever you said, you would be validating him and invalidating your position. And so they're in a no-win situation. Obviously, only God could say, your sins are forgiven you. But if the Lord could say, arise and walk, wouldn't the miracle validate his authority to forgive sins? And so they don't want to say, they can't really say you're, you know, that either one. And so they just keep quiet. And now these guys never move, they never speak in Matthew's account. They come across to me even more paralyzed than the paralytic. But that you may know that the Son of Man 
has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Quick observation, he says here, power on earth to forgive sins. On earth, that is during your lifetime, is when sins can be forgiven. Not after. There is no second chance after death to hear the gospel preached and be saved. There's no place of further punishment by which you can earn your way into heaven. This life, this is it. I've been mentioning this a little more frequently in our studies lately when it's appropriate because there is a movement within Christianity towards universalism of some sort. It's the teaching that eventually everyone will somehow be saved in the end. There's different methods that people suggest either suffering in purgatory or some say they'll be, uh, have another chance to have the gospel preached to them and of course after they're dead they'll realize you know, that it's true and, and get saved. But it's called universalism. It's been around for a long time. Uh, it's, it's, it's nothing new but it's making a resurgence. I wish it were true. With all my heart, I wish universalism were true and that no one had to be Uh, judged for their sin, having rejected Christ and spend eternity in hell, but it is not true. Now, Jesus called himself the son of man. There's a phrase familiar to the Jews, especially the scribes who spent time researching scripture. The prophet Daniel used the phrase to describe the promised Messiah. More than just claiming to be both God and their Messiah, Jesus was challenging these students of scripture. If the Messiah was one who had power to heal, And if Jesus was performing these healings that only their Messiah could do, well, then do the math. Then he was the Messiah. The scribes had a saying, a sick man does not recover from his sickness until his sins are forgiven him. It's not true, by the way, but since it's what they believe, God was willing to meet them on their level. Now, there's a sub-theme in these verses regarding faith and works. We've seen that the paralytic's friends had a faith that showed itself in their works, Now the formerly paralyzed man shows his faith by his works. He picks up his mat as ordered and goes home as ordered. Verse eight, now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. They don't really still understand who Jesus is. Nevertheless, they glorify God. God's glory is the physical, visible demonstration of his nature and character. The people saw God as ready to forgive, willing to heal, wanting to save. It was not the representation of God they ever got from the scribes. Do we represent God as ready to forgive, willing to heal, wanting to save? Well, we need to. The scribes in that house were not saved. They were spiritual paralytics. Most of us are saved. We need to be careful comparing ourselves directly to them. It is possible, as I've said, though, for us to use them as an example. They had a great start under Ezra and definitely were a group of saved individuals, but they regressed into legalism and self-righteousness, and sadly, so can Christians regress if we're not careful. Let me just throw out some random thoughts based on the text. First, we saw that these guys were not evangelical. By that I mean they weren't bringing anyone to Jesus and by their actions they were actually blocking people from coming to Jesus. It's important for each of us for our own spiritual vitality to remember that we are commissioned to share Christ with paralytics and the spiritually dead who owe a debt they cannot pay. We're not all evangelists but we can at some level do the work of an evangelist. 
At the very least, we can let people know we're believers. We can insinuate Jesus in our conversations, hoping that they will become interested. We can invite them to church. We can support the evangelistic efforts of others. There's a million things that we can do, but we need to remain evangelistic and look at people and wonder if they're saved, and if they're not, think about how God may want to use us in their lives to share Christ with them. Second, we already noted that they came to hear Jesus with a critical spirit. There's a difference between discernment and criticism. We want to be discerning at all times, like the Bereans who are described in the book of Acts who checked out the apostle Paul's teachings by comparing it to the word of God. So the the great apostle Paul would teach and then the Bereans would take his teaching and they would line it up against the scriptures that they had to make sure that what Paul was saying was scriptural. And some of the things that Paul was saying were out there from a Jewish point of view that Gentiles were getting saved and that Gentiles didn't need circumcision or to become Jews. And so it it wasn't an easy thing to do. It was a, a lot easier for some Jews to just be critical. But the Bereans, they had a discernment that was not criticism. Now, while we certainly don't want to be drawn aside by error, we can become so narrow in our thinking that almost no one can meet our standards of orthodoxy. You've seen the the videos of the Westboro Baptist people, have you not? Those guys and gals that picket at, uh, you know, military funerals and say that the soldiers deserve to die and, and that God hates America and that we're under judgment and all of that. I mean, I don't even know what to think about all of that except that that is a caricature of Christianity. And somewhere along the line, they, they lost a sense of who Jesus really is and what Jesus is really about. I don't know if you'd call it a regression or or whatever, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We don't wanna become so narrow that maybe me and one other person are the only orthodox people in the world and that everybody else is a little bit off. And so be discerning but not critical. Third, the scribes should have given up their seats to make way for the paralytic. Maybe I'm reading into this, but I think sometimes we don't see more of the Lord's power because we're not sensitive to our surroundings. Be aware of what's happening around you, especially when believers have gathered around the word. And this also means we should have a big view of the world in which we live. There are needs to be met all around us and all over the world. If I'm prospering, it's so I can help others. Now, I love the fact we sponsor missionaries and support kids through Gospel of Asia, Gospel for Asia, that we help build a church in India and built more than a dozen Jesus wells and that we have money again to send to GFA this year. I love the fact our body is ministering to the homeless community in Hanford. But I wanna do more and more with what God has blessed us with. We should always be looking for people with needs so that we can bring the gospel to them. Now here's a suggestion, if you're stirred up to start something or to do something, think about outreach before you think about anything else. Christians certainly need to learn how to walk, but non-believers are still paralyzed and they need to be reached, they're not even walking yet. You might recall the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector who were both praying. Pharisee went on and on about how spiritual he was, prefacing it by saying, I thank God I'm not like that tax collector. I guess what I'm saying this morning is that we should be thankful and grateful that we're not like that Pharisee and that we should work hard to not regress and become like that Pharisee. 
Pharisees started great in the time of Ezra, scribes and the Pharisees, and then they regressed. Uh, they, we want to make progress, and, and I think the best way to do that is to have Jesus' heart of compassion and look upon others as the paralytics that they are in need of the forgiveness of sin.